Okay, welcome. Uh, I, the live stream is going a little okay. I think we're on now. Welcome. Uh, it's Danny Haifong again. You are tuned in to another episode of the Internationalist Transmission. And we have a very special guest. It's former US Marine, current journalist and the editor and the organizer of the new Atlas YouTube channel, as well as the website, which was formerly known as Land Destroyer. Uh, it's Brian Berletic. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be on. Great. Uh, let me know in the chat uh, if how I'm sounding and everything. I'm kind of messing with audio. We tested before, but if anything goes wrong, just let me know. But yeah, let's let's get to this. Uh, so Brian, I've actually been reading you since the Tony Cartolucci days, over a decade. I remember reading your work in places like uh, New Eastern Outlook, which you still contribute to, as well as places like uh, Center for Global Research, based in Canada. And Around that time, I was kind of diving into geopolitics in a really broad sense. The Obama administration's invasion of Libya really sparked my interest in how the Democratic Party was continuing the onslaught of imperialism that my generation had associated with George W. Bush and the war on terror. And so when I started reading your work, I mean, you were talking about everything. You were talking about Thailand, where you're based now. You were talking about Russia, you were talking about Asia, which is a huge focus now. So uh, could you give people just a sense of who you are and what got you into analyzing geopolitics and empire? And then we can get into this pivot to Asia, which I know was a, a pretty monumental moment, at least in my life. And, and I know that uh, it became a real center of focus for you. Okay, so I, I mean, like you said, I'm I'm a former U.S. Marine. My mindset going into the Marines was uh, patriotism, wanting to do my part, uh, perceiving that being part of the U.S. military is protecting the country. And I guess in a way it is, but in a very minimum sense, because most of what the U.S. does is imperialism. It's not actually defending the country. Every Every nation should have a powerful military to protect themselves. That's obviously not what the U.S. is doing. And my own personal experience, uh, I, I spent most of my time in the Marines in Japan and just watching how the U.S. military interacted with the, the locals and with officials there. It just seemed unfair. Even in the mindset that I had, I saw things and I just thought, that's not, that's not right. Why are we doing that? If we're the good guys, why are we doing stuff like this? And uh, obviously, the, the war with Afghanistan, that started while I was in. And then they were getting ready to go into Iraq. And even in the military, the people around me would say, you know, there's there's no weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. This is just them finishing what they were doing during the Gulf War. This is this is ju just them making an excuse to go in. This is people in the military saying this. It was very obvious and it just seemed outrageous. And when you 
when you understand what these weapons do, you're trained to use these weapons, you understand what they do to the, the human body, and you understand that this is the US going into somebody else's country, you, unleashing these weapons on people uh, based on a lie. That is horrific when you, when you realize that, how horrific that is. A lot of people kind of take it like, you know, they're spectators. Or, or an audience in a movie or something, and it doesn't seem real to them. To me, it seems real, and it seems uh, unjust, and it just felt like something that you should stand up to, and that's why I got involved in, in writing about it. Uh, for the longest time, I, I hadn't been writing. I think I started writing like around 2009, uh, and it's because I, I didn't know enough to feel like I could share anything. I was busy researching and trying to figure out what to do. You know, you, you grow up, believing in something, it turns out to be completely untrue. You have to restructure your whole life. And that, that's what I was doing all those years. And when I started writing, I, like I said, I uh, picked a pet name, Tony Cardellucci. I did that for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> writing about, I mean, if a country is going into another country, I'm just wiping, wiping everybody out. Uh, like when you're gonna speak up about that, there's some danger involved. At least it seems like there's some danger involved. And so uh, there was that. And then I started noticing what the US was doing in Thailand. I, I decided to leave the US altogether. I wanted nothing to do. I didn't want to contribute to it. A lot of people think that I'm some kind of anti, I'm like anti-American or something. That's not true. I, I'm anti-US foreign policy. Uh, I don't care how the US government wants to run its internal political affairs. I don't care if that's okay with the American people. Uh, that's their business, but when you start affecting other countries around the world, that's when it becomes an issue. And I wanted nothing to do with that. So I, I decided to live in Thailand. I picked Thailand because it was one of the countries that I had gone to while in the military. I liked it, it was nice, uh, and it was a place where I could go and, and start a new life. And I started to notice that even there, you know, they, they always say, love America or leave it. You, you cannot, there's nowhere you can go to, to leave it. They've, they have their tentacles out everywhere, even in Thailand. I noticed the political interference. I noticed the uh, proxies that they were they were backing to try to control Thailand politically, economically, and I started to write about that as well. I, I think like around 2009, 2010, that's when I started writing and I started getting real serious in 2011. Uh, in 2010, there was like a color revolution here in Thailand. They had these red shirts out in the streets. Uh, it was bloody. There were war weapons in the streets of Bangkok. People might not know this, but uh, they, had, they had like M16s, AK-47s, grenade launchers. Uh, about 100 people died in that violence. And then the Arab Spring followed the next year, and it was verbatim, literally step by step, the exact same process that the U.S. was using in those countries as they did in Thailand the year before. So I took what I knew and I started writing about that because I, I knew that even though Thailand sort of kind of dodged a bullet in 2010, they would be back. And they are there. Well, they, they've tried more recently, last two or three years, they've been trying again. And so I just felt at that time, if I could expose the Arab Spring and just this process that the US goes through to divide and destroy countries, people will start to understand it. And then the next time it happens in Thailand, they will not be starting from a blank piece of paper. Uh, they will have some background knowledge. They will notice this, and this will be something that will help push back against it, maybe maybe prevent it from happening. Some, some countries in the Arab world dodged a bullet as well during the 20, uh, 2011 unrest. So 
that's pretty much what's driven me all of this time. I guess I focus more on Asia now because I'm here. There's a lot of other people now, not not back then, but now there's a lot of people covering Latin America, uh, Africa, uh, the Middle East, and they, I don't feel like I need to focus all of my time. I'm just one guy, so I, I just focus on Asia and Southeast Asia because despite all of the people coming out right now, think about Myanmar. Who, who else is talking about Myanmar? Really, nobody. So this is something I feel like I, I should focus my time on. You have people doing great work covering uh, Latin America, uh, you know, like the Gray Zone, and now Ben, ben Norton uh, doing Latin America. You have a lot of uh, media outlets in the Middle East or covering the Middle East, so it's pretty covered. And just Southeast Asia is the, the missing link, I think. If everybody works together and continues uh, uh, talking about this, exposing it, showing people what's really going on, it's going to enable countries to push back. So yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, no, well, I feel very similarly because, I, I mean, I came to politics around the time when the pivot to Asia was happening. I was becoming more, I guess, politicized in a lot of ways, paying more attention to what was going on. Uh, I was here in the United States, becoming really disillusioned with the Obama era, not because I had many expectations, but because now there were some rifts that were happening. Uh, I mentioned the invasion of Libya, but then there was also Occupy Wall Street was happening here in the U.S. And it just seemed like that there was this continuity that not many people were getting. So I started to talk a lot about that. And as I started to do more research, kind of similar to yourself, I found out about this pivot to Asia. You know, I found out about Obama's foreign policy designs to focus more on Asia, to become more influential in Asia. Again, there was this kind of feeling of having lost Asia because of the way that the Bush administration took such a special interest in the Arab world, in the Middle East. And there was so much public relations backlash against that from the American public, from the world. And so when I found out about Hillary, you know, Hillary Clinton touring around, she was touring around Asia. She went to Vietnam and she basically announced this policy. And right away, I mean, there were results. There was a, a large military buildup that happened over those next five years or so. Uh, to the point where by the time the Trump administration announced that he was going to go full, uh, you know, full speed ahead with this policy, uh, the United States at that time, I think, had already shifted more than 50 percent of its military assets to the Asia Pacific. And uh, that was a huge transition. Uh, this despite the fact that you had the establishment even saying that this policy was a failure, that it wasn't even tough enough. And then, of course, you had Trump come in and give the policy more of an offensive bluster. Uh, but really, it was just an escalation of the same. And so I really got into China more so as I began to notice that China was the focus of all of this. I, listening to speeches, seeing these policies, and then finally getting the opportunity, now that I saw this propaganda blitz happening under Trump, getting the opportunity to go to China and see for myself what was going on there, the difference between what the U.S. and the West was saying about China and that experience. And then also seeing like yourself that no one's talking about this. No one's talking about the rise of China, the rise of Asia, how 
politics, economics, there is a real shift to this region in terms of influence, in terms of development, and in terms of really what the future of humanity is going to be led by. I mean, the U.S. and the West, we can see it. They don't have anything really to offer anywhere in the world. Uh, But this, for damn sure, is the truth in Asia where China is this economic miracle, does have this astounding level of growth over the last several decades, and its policies are categorically different in character to the U.S. and West. And if they weren't, uh, we would see a much different geopolitical situation. So I'm wondering, Brian, if you could discuss more, because I think what you said there at the end of it, nobody's talking about Myanmar, no one's talking about Thailand, Malaysia. Could you give us, uh, you know, your analysis of what's going on? What What is the U.S.'s role? What is the West's role there? And how does this all kind of fit into this larger pivot to Asia and maybe any changes that you've seen over this time period? Because we're kind of celebrating almost a decade of this policy, really, um, that has culminated now in this Winter Olympics moment. So uh, maybe if you could give your analysis of what it's been like to cover that and what's been going on. It's, it's interesting because I came to Thailand around 2004 and I've more or less been here the entire time. Either here in Thailand, I, I spent about a year or so in Singapore. I did go back to the US for one year just to like kind of say my final goodbyes to everyone in case they were never going to travel over here, but, but they have. And uh, I think that kind of speaks to um, people who have an entrenched uh, mindset that the rest of the world is backwards and America is like the shining beacon on the hill. They have traveled, uh, my family has traveled to meet me here in Thailand and they're just blown away. You know, do what you think it's like and then what it's actually like are two entirely different things. And even though at the time, uh, when I came back from the US for the final time, I, I did not travel by air, I traveled by train and and boat and bus from, from the US all the way back to Thailand. And I traveled through China by rail. This is before they had the high speed rail. They were they were just mm. you know finishing the first few lines. And it does, it just completely blows you away how how advanced everything is, how hard everyone's working. I I arrived in Shanghai and I mean I'd never seen a city more busy than that. And uh, when you talk to Chinese people, how how kind they are, how nice they are. It's just like people are people everywhere you go. But if you're in the United States, you have it constantly hammered into your head that they're not, they're different. Somehow they're different. They're not, they're, they're great people just like everywhere else. And uh, so there was that. And there's also the fact that from 2004 until now, you can see the shift here in Thailand, the economic shift, the geopolitical shift from a region that was still very much dominated by Western influence to crawling out from under that legacy of colonialism. Now, Thailand, was never colonized by Western powers, but every other country in Southeast Asia was, every country around Thailand was. You had the the French in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, you had the British in Malaysia to Thailand South and uh, Myanmar, which used to be called Burma. So people hear Burma, Myanmar, Mm -hmm. it's called Burma because that's what it was called under British uh, colonization. And the US and the UK still as policy call it Burma because they refuse to recognize what the people there actually call their own country. Just, just to show you how blatant uh, the imperialism is. It's, this is what it's all about. It's imperialism. It's Western imperialism that has prevailed for uh, generations, really. 
And the, you know, World War II, you look at World War II and you saw a lot of nations try to slip out from under Western imperialism, especially here in Southeast Asia. And the 20th century was all about the US, the US leading the charge with the British, with the French and other Western countries trying to reassert control over Asia. That's what this has always been about. Uh, when you hear about Tibet or Xinjiang or Hong Kong, uh, these, these pressure points the US talks about today, this has been going on since, I mean, the CIA was involved with Tibet back in the 1950s. And the, this, you know, the so-called Dalai Lama, uh, he was uh, approached and uh, controlled by the CIA since the 1950s. And this isn't me saying this or China saying this, you can go to state.gov and it's documents that are publicly available for everyone to see. And that's pretty much what it's been about. I mean, the pivot to Asia, this was just like kind of um, a propaganda campaign to, to really try to, to consolidate everything and really focus on it. But it's something that's been going on since uh, the end of World War II, this, this process of trying to encircle and contain China uh, by undermining the political and, and economic sovereignty of nations surrounding China, including in Southeast Asia. Uh, you, you know, you saw the U.S. was mainly behind the EU and NATO, and they still are very much so. And they, they tried to control what Europe does. They were trying to do the same thing in Southeast Asia. You have this ASEAN, which was supposed to be a Southeast version, a Southeast Asian version of the EU. And around the 90s, it just kind of petered out. And the, the countries here, they had, they had U.S. proxies in every country. They had this uh, billionaire Thaksin Chirawat in Thailand. You had Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar. And you had Anwar Ibrahim in Malaysia. And you had Hun Sen in Cambodia. But he was, he's always been 50-50. And he, at the time, he was towing the line for the West because the West was still extremely powerful and influential. But at that time, from the late 90s until now, there has been this actual pivot away from this Western influence and uh, a real beginning to sovereignty in Southeast Asia. And it's, it's been China that's helped do that. Uh, one other story I just kind of want to relay is uh, during my trip back to Thailand from the US, this was around 2006, 2007, something like that. I passed through Laos and I took a bus and it was through these winding mountainous roads. It was horrible. It was three days from Kuoming to the capital of Yenchan on the Lao-Thai border. And uh, at that time, you saw Chinese construction crews building these modern highways. Now those highways are done. And by road, the trip is cut down to a day. And now they have the high-speed rail. And you just have to think that the US, France, the UK, they've had control over this region more or less for generations. Uh, China is just emerging as a global power. And what did it do with this opportunity and this influence? They started building and helping in a very tangible way lift these countries up out of poverty. Laos is an incredibly impoverished country because of its geography. It's landlocked, it has mountainous terrain that makes it difficult just to travel inside the country, let alone uh, send and receive goods uh, with its neighbors. And China has changed all of that. They've completely transformed that. They've taken that from a, a weakness to now an asset for Laos. They, they're becoming this hub connecting Southeast Asia to East Asia. This is what, this is what China is doing for the region. For, Thailand, uh, this is this is something that I've been fighting for for like 10 years, trying to get across to people. A lot of people are very kind of superficial in analyzing countries around the world. They look at Thailand right now. The prime minister is a former army general. Uh, it's a constitutional monarchy. A lot of people, especially if they're, they're left-leaning, they'll say, ah, 
obviously a stooge of the US. Look at what they did during Vietnam, obviously. But no, uh, China is Thailand's largest trading partner right now, largest investor. Uh, until this COVID thing came, it was the largest source of tourism where uh, China, more tourists were coming from China than uh, all Western countries combined. It was, it was, that, it was that, that good. And uh, these were much better quality tourists too than the type of tourists you get from the West m most of the time. And uh, the high-speed rail is supposed to go from Laos through Thailand to at least Bangkok, but perhaps from Bangkok to Malaysia and even Singapore. And this is already under construction. So the Thai government right now is working with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and also something else people don't know is that uh, China is also the largest provider of arms to the Thai military. So they've been replacing all of their old outdated US hardware with Chinese alternatives. And uh, again, another little interesting thing that I've I've noticed since I've been here is uh, back before, a little bit before 2014, when the U.S. overthrew the the government of Ukraine, Thailand was actually going to buy tanks from Ukraine. So they want to try to balance their ties. They don't want to be too far in any camp. Just kind of be straight down the middle and have good relations with everybody. But when the U.S. overthrew the government in Ukraine in 2014, they could not deliver the tanks. So this is why. Uh, Thailand bought from China instead. So it's just another one of those examples of how the US goes in and just wrecks every, everything they touch. And they did it very deliberately. It wasn't, wasn't like it was an accident. They did this very deliberately. Uh, so uh, just being here in Thailand all of these years and watching how things have transformed, how all of the signs used to be in English and Japanese to cater to those type of uh, tourists and investors to now uh, English schools offering Mandarin classes. It's it's something that if you've been paying attention to, it's it's kind of exciting to watch the change and, and watch the confidence of people in Asia, in Thailand, in neighboring countries, the, their confidence grow. And this concept that they're somehow underneath this this legacy of Western imperialism shed away. It's, re it's, re it's, very, good. it's very good, but of course the West will not do this without a fight. So but this is what we still see. We still see US-backed protesters here in Thailand. In Myanmar, they they made much more progress in undermining uh, uh, the sovereignty in Myanmar. So you have this conflict right now where, where you have the opposition. I mean, they're like, they're like ISIS. They are such extremists and so impossible to talk to. And they are burning their country to the ground right now. And so the, the US is still posing a, a huge danger to the region. And this is what their pivot is about. It's not about competing with China. It's about burning everything down to deny it, uh, deny it to China and also just deny Asia this chance at rising and shining on the global stage. Yeah, indeed. It, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about that that coup, so-called coup in Myanmar. And immediately what the United States did was they slapped sanctions. And if you read the sanctions from the Department of State website, the State Department website, you'll see that it's all targeting state-owned industries. So it's all about creating not only economic suffering and pain, but directly influencing the political situation on the ground. It's about starving government resources and trying to enact a political situation that's favorable to the United States. And it's all about U.S. national interests. They all, all of the 
political establishment, no matter regardless of which party, they say the same thing about that. They say it's all about U.S. national interests. And I'm glad to have you on, Brian, because I feel like this positive side, these positive developments that are happening for the people of this region in China when I was there, the level of confidence of Chinese people. I mean, I don't know how it is in other parts of Asia. It's great to hear that in Thailand. This is also the case. But in China, I mean, I've never seen I, I literally have never seen people that confident. <laughs> like growing, growing up in the United States in a moment, you know, I grew up all of my adult years have been post 2007, 2008 economic crisis. So the enthusiasm, the disillusion, you know, the lack of enthusiasm, the disillusionment, the hopelessness, the mental health crises, the unemployment, the economic struggle and strife, the exploitation, the policing, all of this, all of these real signs of decay are just so formative to people now. And, and so in the United States, I mean, most people walk with their heads down. <laughs> you know, most people walk with their head, they, they don't have hope for the future. And there's good reasons for that. But in China, it's the exact opposite. And I feel like in Asia, this is a, a huge thing, too, is that there is this hope that the centuries long underdevelopment, the colonialism, the intervention, all of the suffering that has happened, that that will come to an end, that it's coming to an end, and that there is a much brighter future for the generations to come, including the one that is currently making history now. So I think it's really important to talk about this. But, I, you know, I also know, you know, know that and I know you know this, that there's been a heavy handed response from the United States and the West to this. The pivot to Asia was one that was kind of the military component with the propaganda. But there's also this soft power component that you talk a lot about that I think is really important because I think it is what gives the United States and the West this sort of public relations image of being interested in democracy and interested in bettering the lives of people. You hear it when the United States talks about the South China Sea, for example, the U.S. paints itself as the savior that it's going to come into the South China Sea dispute and ally with the Philippines, ally with Vietnam, ally with Malaysia, and uh, essentially turn things around and get the Chinese aggressor to stop being a bully, right? That's that's the narrative. But then there's these soft power actors. You kind of mentioned it with the protesters in Thailand, uh, but this is going on all across Asia. A lot of backing from the National Endowment for Democracy it's just a lot of covert activity happening. Could you discuss more about that? And what what is that in response to? To me, it seems like a, a real, almost like a real desperate act to conceal the true interests of this empire. But at the same time, as you said, it it, it kind of backfires in a lot of ways. So So, yeah, could you talk more about this part of this war on Asia, this war on China? Yes, absolutely. It's backfiring now because people are aware of what this all is. When they see this happening, they know that it's the United States meddling in the internal political affairs and, and attacking the sovereignty of nations. But it didn't always used to be that way. Uh, I mean, back in 2010, when Taksin Chinawat and his red shirts were out on the streets, you have a lot of even anti-imperialists confused about what was going on. Because uh, what the US does is when they back these groups, they 
from country to country, they all have a different story. And the, the only thing that they have, uh, you know, in common is that they're being funded by the U.S. and they they're usually anti-China and anti-Russia. That's the common denominator. Uh, but they would use leftist slogans, even though their leader is this co extremely corrupt billionaire, worst human rights record in Thai history, uh, hiding out in Dubai and traveling to the United States. And, and when he was overthrown in a military coup in 2006, he was like literally in New York City at the Council on Foreign Relations doing a talk when, uh, when he got overthrown by the Thai military. But but a lot of a lot of even anti-imperialists were confused about this because of the soft power component and how well it was hidden, how how difficult it was at the time to get information about this. But I I, I like to think that uh, in in some way I've helped uh, direct people's attention to this. When you see something happening, follow the money. Do not be distracted by ideological superficialities because oftentimes uh, that is that is done on purpose specifically to help camouflage what the US is doing. So you have to ask yourself, do you are you really trying to oppose Western imperialism or are you just trying to kind of like uh, uh, cultivate your own pet political proclivities by going along with these sort of things? And, and oftentimes you'll find that governments, even though they superficially seem like they're not, they're not leftist or they're not socialist enough, most of the time their policies are much more socialist than you would probably think. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. is going after them. Uh, so, again, like Thailand, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that there's a lot of socialism going on here, but there is. There's universal health care. This is something that, as an American, I, I know nothing about. And uh, and even if you're not covered, because you because I'm not Thai, so I'm not covered. But they have done a lot to keep the costs of of all kinds of medical treatments down. And this is something that's been going on for since I've been here. Uh, this is a, a long time coming. There's a lot of examples of that here in Thailand and across Asia. Now, the, the soft power component, this is this really was like at the heart of the pivot. What they want to do, because none of these countries, obviously, they're looking at what the U.S. has to offer. They're looking at what China has to offer. It's a no brainer. It's, a, it's not a it's not even a difficult decision. You you want to move forward into the future with infrastructure, trade, peace and stability, you go with China. And if you want to burn the whole region down, uh, but profit personally, you go with the US. And you might profit personally in the short term, but in the long term, you're not going to have a country underneath you mm -hmm. left. So uh, this is the thing most people, except, except the, the most hopeless cases, have figured out. And this is why you have the US backing these opposition groups. And when you listen to them talk, when you press them for you know, what is your program? What are your policies? What do you actually want to see happen in the future? They, they don't have coherent answers to any of this. When you ask, what is your problem with China? They will just obediently regurgitate Western propaganda talking points. There's no, there's no actual thought or reason or logic to any of it. And uh, so like in Thailand, for example, they have, uh, well, they still have tax in Chinawat. He's a, he has a very powerful political network. He's got a lot of people in business supporting him, even still here in Thailand, despite it being considered uh, a military dictatorship. They are very like they're very soft in their approach. They they you know there's agitators that are trying to burn the city to the ground, and they like constantly let them out on bail, and they continuously do it. Uh, so they they have a very soft approach because I think what they're trying to do is not not look like how the US is trying to portray them. But of course the US will just lie about it 
anyway. They have Tax and Chinawat, and they have this other uh, bill, also a billionaire, Tanatan Zhuangruongke. And before the the 2019 general elections, he actually traveled to the United States as part of his campaign for for office in Thailand, just to show you how bad it is. And he talked with the U.S. State Department, U.S. Aid, Freedom House, which is a subsidiary of the National Endowment for Democracy, which supports a lot of the groups that are helping his protests out in the streets. A lot of people say he's not behind it. He was literally leading them at the end of 2019. He was literally himself out on the street, physically leading these protests before he hid behind them. So it really is that bad. And they're doing the same thing in Myanmar, the same thing in Cambodia, the same thing in, in Laos, trying uh, Malaysia, same story, Philippines, same story. So you have to you have to really pay attention, follow the money and look, because uh, a lot of these a lot of these governments in the region, uh, they're not, you know, they're not homogeneous in their approach to anything. But the one thing that they they all have is this interest in in sovereignty and in working with China and, and having constructive ties with everybody, including the United States, if possible. Uh, so uh, it, say in Cambodia, I know I'm kind of jumping around here. Say in Cambodia, the, the I said Hun Sen, he's he's pretty much in power for life. And he used to toe the line for the US, but more recently, Cambodia has done its own pivot. And it's one of the, the most supportive countries in the region of China, its policies. When the US attacks China over the South China Sea, Cambodia is one country that will reliably uh, side with China on this. And uh, I guess this is a good moment to explain what is going on in the South China Sea. The South China Sea, like any, any water anywhere in the world, uh, there are disputes. There are disputes between every single country that has claims over the South China Sea. It's not just China versus all of these other countries. It's also all of these other countries versus each other. And even though it gets heated from time to time, I mean, you'll have Malaysia round up these fishing boats that they claim encroached on, on their waters, and they will just blow them up. There's no people on them, but they'll blow them up on a very public and extreme display. But at the end of the day, they, they do not want this turning into a conflict. This is, I mean, we even see this between France and the UK. They're not gonna go over, they're not gonna go to war over this. This is just something that happens. It's always happened. And the US is trying to insert itself into this, these ordinary disputes that can be resolved on their own. They're inserting themselves and trying to transform it into a regional or even a global conflict. And this is to make an excuse to have the US military operating here and potentially uh, use it as a flashpoint if the US is interested in waging a limited conventional war with China. Uh, and uh, people think that's crazy because China has nuclear weapons, so does the US. The US honestly thinks that it can uh, wage a war like in, 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 the, in the waters around China, cripple shipping and trade and set China's economy back enough to prevent it from surpassing the US. This is their actual plan that they've they've uh, written about extensively in these corporate funded think tanks. So there's, there's a lot more to this pivot to Asia than uh, they'll say in the media, it's right below the surface. And then once you know about this, it'll all make so much more sense. Uh, another soft power, uh, soft power is very invasive and dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's not paying off, uh, because because the U.S. will try to flip these countries and get them on board and encircle China. But if that fails, they'll do like what they're doing in Myanmar right now. 
which is just burn the country to the ground so that nobody can benefit from it. And since it's bordering China, it'll be a, a perpetual crisis for China to deal with rather than an asset helping China's rise, helping China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, benefit themselves and anyone else in the region. Uh, soft power, for example, this, this was initiated under Obama and continues to this day. This uh, young Southeast Asia leadership initiative, YSEALI, and what they do is they take young people from this region, they bring them to the United States. There's like um like a very short, short-term educational course. They bring them to Washington. They talk with uh, politicians. They visit the think tanks. And then they send them back to the region with a budget to start up one of these fake NGOs. And it's like a cancer. It's like just festering. And if countries in the region do not take this seriously, this, this is something that will damage the region. It might not necessarily give the U.S. control over these countries, but it'll create enough division internally where these countries are paralyzed from perpetual political crisis, which is something that's like very borderline here in Thailand, for example, or Malaysia. Uh, countries like Cambodia or Laos, they have completely gutted the U.S.-backed opposition. That They only exist in Washington. And they, mm. still, they still cause problems, but uh, they have already dealt with it. Hong Kong is, is kind of a... Sets an example for nations yeah. in the region what they can do in terms of the national security law. So there's there's the soft power, the kind of the Hong Kong model of disrupting and destroying everything, and then there's maybe you could say the the Beijing model, where you shut down this foreign interference by cutting off the funding and uh, removing these people who are directly involved and returning everything to kind of a, a more natural state of of sovereignty and self determination. Yeah, and peacefully too, which is super important because it gives even more credibility to China, especially given the fact that Hong Kong is literally rightfully a part of China. And uh, that was really incredible to watch actually over the last couple of years where you had all of this unrest, you had a lot of violence, you had, what was it, the Hong Kong Polytechnic uh, Technical University being used as like a weapons depot, janitors getting yeah. assaulted in the streets. And yet China was able to not only stay the course and allow the Hong Kong uh, police do what, you know, do what they do independently, even as they were getting attacked, they, they also were able to enact this legislation, which was very popular and has done a real service by arresting people like uh, Joshua Wong, and now Jimmy Lai and a lot of these arrests came not on charges of like, oh, they were controlling the protests. It was just crimes that they had already been engaged with during this whole process since the uh, uh, so-called uh, Occupy uh, the Umbrella movement um, of 2000. What was that? 12, 14, 14, 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this in all these individuals backed in some way by the National Endowment for Democracy and all of these movements that you speak of have millions coming into them, really, uh, if we add them all up. And to me, the National Endowment for Democracy, I mean, this is just well known that it is a CIA spinoff. But the strategy, right, the strategy that it employs is really making mainstream what the CIA had always been doing. It's counterinsurgency warfare. And counterinsurgency warfare is not just well, you're going to arm rebels and let them go, you know, because like, what, hap what happens all across the world? No, there's a huge component of propaganda 
and it, there is a real ideological component to this to make these forces seem like they are in fact democratic and that they are in fact uh, worth supporting and this dates all the way i mean this was happening even during the u.s invasion of vietnam of all things you had these real concerted campaigns to try to paint the uh, puppet forces that vietnam that they you know the united states was supporting in vietnam as these victims of you know communist tyranny and whatnot and that is really just being recycled now in, in this a larger war with China. And I want to get into the ra the real race aspect of this, the racism, because you did a really good video on this. And I want to talk about, you know, when I, when I heard you analyzing the South China Sea situation, all I could think about is how this whole scenario that the U.S., this whole policy makes it so the United States is pushing its so-called allies that Biden can't stop talking about. But really what it's doing is it's using them as a buffer to facilitate a war. In the United States, we know that despite all of its bluster and provocations, Rand Corporation, you know, all of these big think tanks that study war, they said that this would be a disaster if there was an out-and-out -out confrontation. And I think what the United States really wants, and, th and this is just utterly and totally racist is to use the Asian countries that it is mobilizing, that it is undermining and that it is attempting to seize control of and use them as the proxies for this war. So the United States doesn't really have to lose anybody, right? This is what Obama said during Libya. He said it wasn't a war because U.S. troops were not dying. And I think the United States wants to repeat that scenario when it comes to this pivot to Asia, when it comes to this a larger conflict with China. That's the policy is all about. So that, that, to me, that there's nothing more racist than that, than to literally as an imperialist country uh, run and ruled uh, by largely white men, uh, uh, Westerners, to use Asian countries as your foil to wage war. Could you talk about the racial aspect of this larger pivot, this larger war that we're seeing, this buildup to war with China and, and these provocations against Asia? That's a really good point. And uh, one, one thing I just kind of want to uh, touch on a little bit, you just said uh, counterinsurgency. Insurgency, counterinsurgency is something the U.S. does. Uh, the NED is definitely a part of that. It's kind of like a, a very slow motion uh, it's, it's, it's less spectacular. There's, you know, there's not armed groups. Sometimes there are, but most of the time there aren't when the NED is involved trying to soften up a country. What they're doing is building parallel institutions to eventually uh, displace sovereign institutions in a country. So you see these US backed groups here in Thailand trying to take over the legal system, education, culture, everything. They're involved in absolutely everything. And what they're trying to do is, is grow and displace indigenous Thai institutions, culture, ideas, media, everything. It's uh, If you've ever played the game Go, Go is not like chess where you're trying to take the, the other player's pieces off the board. Go is about overtaking the board with your pieces. This is what the U.S. does everywhere. And this is some. This is where the real battle lines are drawn. It's it's keeping them from displacing your pieces, strengthening your pieces to keep this from happening. 
And of course, like what happened in Hong Kong, this was what they were doing. I mean, they have entire universities overrun by these people. You have to weed them out and, and cut them off permanently to stop this from happening. Or it'll go on forever because these people honestly believe what they're what they're involved in and, and they won't stop until you cut off this, this funding and this backing. Now, uh, what you were saying about race, I mean, imperialism, Western imperialism for, for generations and generations has been predicated on racism, on the notion that Western uh, society is superior and everyone else is backwards and that it's the West's duty really to uh, sort all of these backwards people out and get them on board and, and get them with the program. You saw this all over the place. And they don't, they don't actually believe this. They know what they're doing is ruthless. They, they know what they're doing is inhumane, uh, but this is how they present it to the public. This is how they justify it. And this has been going on for generations. It's something that still continues even to this day. When you hear people talk about Thailand and they're saying, you know, uh, they do this and they do that. And it's not like what we do in the West. So they just assume that it's wrong and it's backwards. That's racism. That's you're a racist. If you're saying Thailand is wrong for having it, its monarchy, its military being a powerful independent institution. Why does Thailand have to copy what the West is doing to be right? Uh, and so this is that racist component of imperialism out in the open today in the year 2022. This is racist imperialism right out in the open. And it's done in every single country where your values are wrong unless your values are copying and even groveling before Western ideas and so-called values. Uh, and so, so people really need to always keep this in mind. What you say about the, the US using Asians against Asians, uh, that is a good point. Another good point to keep in mind is that the U.S. is not just fighting against China and trying to prevent China from surpassing the U.S. When, when this happens, it'll be irreversible. The U.S. will have absolutely no way of stopping it once it happens. It's also about stopping all of Asia rising. Like I, I just said, Laos was an impoverished, landlocked country that is now being transformed into a logistical hub by, by China. Uh, by the way, when China was building this railway and, and also the highways, what were they doing first before they could do anything. They had to demine the land because the U.S. dumped yeah. uh, mines, uh, unexploded cluster munitions. There's more unexploded ordnance in Laos right now than actual people. That is how badly the U.S. bombed this country. And uh, I, I remember, I forget what her name was, but she she was uh, she was some representative for the U.S. to ASEAN. And uh, I was talking about the amount of money that the U.S. spends on removing these unexploded ordnance because the US always acts like they're doing Southeast Asia a favor by funding these you know these technicians to come in and remove it. It's like you're yeah. just cleaning up your mess. They haven't yeah. even done that, let alone move past that and actually help these countries in any tangible way. And they're they're always on about we're going to help you with democracy. We're going to help you with um all, all of these very intangible things while China's building roads and railways and factories and dams and trading and giving people opportunities, economic op opportunities that's putting money into their pocket. When you are trying to push you know, democracy, which is a complete facade in the first place, it's, it's always going to be an uphill battle for them. And this, this is what you're seeing. And yes, if, if ultimately they could just turn the whole region in on itself 
and burn it all to the ground they would. And that, that's pretty much what they're doing. I mean, with South, uh, the South China Sea, the situation in Myanmar, the whole situation over Taiwan, this is the US setting all of these time bombs uh, up in the region to eventually go off and consume the region at a minimum cost to the US. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely that is definitely the case. I, I mean, there there really can be no other explanation given what's happening. I mean, those countries that are struggling the most right now are those countries that are dealing with U.S. influence. They're the ones who really are dealing with this need, as you said earlier in the program. It's like this balancing act. You if you're a government in this in the Asia Pacific, you have to contend with the United States seeking to impose its hegemony onto you. And then you have China, which has 5G technology and all of this incredible infrastructure, this, this high technology that it's willing to cooperate around for a very, uh, a very fair deal, right? right? The way that China deals with countries around the world is very fair and all of the progressive governments around the world and all of the governments that have re uh, good relations with China, which is the vast majority of them all say this, you know, whether it's uh, your favorite leftist government in Latin America to the ones that you don't understand <laughs> in Asia, they all say, and in Africa, they all say the same thing. There's no deviation to that line. And it's not because of some evil Chinese plot. It's because the reality is the reality is that China has a different model for deal, doing things and it has something to offer. And Asia really only stands to benefit from that. That's why you even have Japan, which is very antagonistic to China, right? They, they'll they sit back a lot of the times when the U.S. is trying to organize it to, to provoke China because they know that business with China is just too important for Japan's economy. To, to isolate Japan's economy from China would be suicide. Japan was actually very helpful to China in the 1980s. A lot of the development and growth that you see China being able to accomplish now, a lot of that had to do with Japanese assistance because Japan had its own resurgence around that period and, and they really shared that information and shared that know-how. So let's talk about, I guess, let's maybe end with this Belt and Road Initiative that's happening because I think this really is at the heart of a lot of U.S. and Western animus towards China and really toward Asia as a whole. And honestly, the entire planet at this point is signing on. You have Syria recently joined as of this year, uh, this very young new year. You have Cuba, the same. Nicaragua, the same. Right. You have just country after country saying, despite U.S. aggression, despite really devastating sanctions saying that, no, we're going to take our own path. And China's Belt and Road Initiative is a very important part of the future of humankind and the future of these particular countries to be able to have an alternative. And I think that's what the Belt and Road Initiative really is all about. And the fear that it stokes in the West is it's that now these countries can choose. It's not just the U.S., is the only country that can 
dominate and dictate affairs, especially on the economic front. Now China is able to say, hey, we have, look at how our country has developed. I mean, how inspiring is it for a country in Latin America or even like Syria to see China lead the world in things like high-speed rail and artificial intelligence and to uh, see wages and per capita income and all of that increase every year by several percentage points, sometimes 10% uh, per year, right? Like, I mean, th that is very inspiring to people who have understood for generations what it means to be extremely impoverished generation after generation and also face the threat of violence and the reality of violence from, from Western aggressors and colonizers. So yeah, let's talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a very positive experience. You mentioned the Sinolao Railway. I mean, I'm jealous. I, I know some of our uh, friends, foreign fellow travelers uh, have been able to even go on that railway. It's super, uh, incredibly um, important, I think, because we already had announcements that this railway is going to help the Lao economy grow by like four to six percent uh, in the next year. So, yeah, what what are your thoughts on the Belt and Road Initiative, Brian? Like, what what do you see? I mean, you're in that region too. Like, what do you see as the major elements of it, and what it means uh, broadly for Asia and the world? So imperialism all throughout human history has always been a very unsustainable proposition. The idea of you lording over the entire planet, telling everybody what to do, exploiting them, extracting wealth from them, it's unsustainable. And we've watched empires come and go. And the Western world is still obsessed with the idea of empire. And the entire system that they've created is imperialistic by nature, down, down to its essential DNA. And something this big really cannot change. It cannot change quickly, at least. Uh, there's a momentum to it. But then there's also the fact that the people uh, still in control of it, they don't want to change. They want to maintain it. They want to reassert it. What China's doing through the Belt and Road Initiative is part of this concept of multipolarism, a balance of power around the world where uh, nations are working together. They have economic, political, and military power that keeps each other in check. And so that there isn't even the temptation for this type of imperialistic abuse. There's also just the fact of, of human technology. Uh, if you look over time, you know, it, it goes up like this. And then uh, as time goes on, it's exponentially improving, which means, you know, like 100 or 200 years ago, it was possible for one nation to have some sort of technological edge over another. Today, it just isn't possible. It's impossible to do this. And so if you're trying to build a 19th or 20th century empire in the 21st century where technology is just not going to give you that edge, you're talking about your country, say the US with 300 million people, trying to impose itself on say China with 1.4 billion people where technologically everything is about the same or China's even pulling ahead because of the, the just the sheer amount of human resources they have uh, involved in say uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, the, the STEM fields. So it, it just is at face value. It's a losing proposition. There's no way for them to do it except through the most extreme uh, ways. And then even then it's, it's not going to be a sustainable solution. Even if somehow they manage to pull off some kind of way of stopping China, 
temporarily. It will be temporarily. And let's say this just like wiped everyone out in the country. And so that aside, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, this really is China understanding where humanity is, understanding the concept of multipolarism, the unsustainability of being a hegemon that simply just replaces the US. They understand how that is a losing proposition from the very beginning. And so they've taken a different path, a more constructive path, a more profitable path where they're going to pay into this balance of power that, that will check the, the worst impulses they themselves have. We're all human and we're all susceptible to the same sort of temptations. They have built this into their system, this check and balance into the system. They are building Laos up. They are building Thailand up. They are building all of these countries up rather than building over them like the US and the British have been doing for so long. And so, yes, of course, the US wants to stop this. They are they are fighting against it tooth and nail everywhere you look. Uh, there is a conflict where the Belt and Road Initiative is trying to go through. So say Myanmar, we're watching the whole country burn to the ground because there's a, a pipeline that already exists that brings uh, hydrocarbons from Myanmar's coast to uh, Yunnan province, Kuoming, so, so Chinese vessels don't have to go through the Strait of Malacca and all of these waters, the US is menacing with its, its naval forces. Uh, Pakistan has the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and we have this uh, Balochistan separatist movement that's always uh, targeting and killing uh, Chinese engineers, attacking the physical infrastructure. This was also going on in Myanmar for years and years. And again, the, the Balochistan separatists are openly backed by the US. Uh, there was a time where even in Congress, they were openly talking about supporting them and helping carve Balochistan. This is the Southwest region of Pakistan, carving it off from Pakistan, making it independent. And then if, if you understood what the map looked like back then, I think like around between 2011, 2014, what the map looked like, you had US forces in Afghanistan and then Balochistan is right to the South of it. So it would have given occupying US forces access to the sea, which would have been would have been really great for US imperialism, but it just it just hasn't happened. But they're they're still doing this. So if you see attacks in Balochistan, Pakistan, that's what it is. It's it's the US still doing this, attacking the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, like like I said, for Lao, uh, having traveled through Lao before any of these infrastructure projects were completed, I can tell you that uh, you know, if you're a backpacker, maybe traveling through Laos for three days is great for you. But if you're a business person, uh, if your life if your life and your business depends on moving things from one point to the other economically, uh, it was horrible. And it was why the country was so impoverished. I, I could tell you another story about Laos. Uh, before these projects were completed, I remember being in Vientiane, the capital, right across the, the border with Thailand. It's on the Mekong River. And I remember these Western NGOs They've got their little SUVs and they're going through Vien Chan. It was like a dusty town, like it's a capital of a country, but it looked like a dusty Thai city, like a very small dusty Thai city. And the UN and these other organizations controlled by the West, they would be hanging banners in the streets saying like, turn out your lights at night, you know, don't, don't use electricity. And you have to think about what the mentality is behind this and how this has been applied globally by the West. If your goal is to control the entire planet. You do not want to build these people up. You don't want to give them infrastructure. You don't want to give them resources. You don't want to give them economic opportunities. You want to keep them down in the dumps, yeah. impoverished, 
divided and even fighting if possible. This is how it, all empire has always uh, maintained itself. And this is how modern empire attempts to maintain itself. So the Belt and Road Initiative really is, it's like the, the antidote to all of this. And uh, the, the West is just kicking and screaming every step of the way. And it's, it's just so important to constantly show people what's really happening because a lot of people haven't seen it and they can't imagine it until they've seen it. It's, it's hard to explain to people that haven't seen it, who haven't been to Asia. If you're a Westerner and you've never been to Asia, you, you have no idea because all you know is what your media is telling you. We already know how the Western media deceives people. And uh, like, like you or like me, having been to Asia and seeing it for yourself, you, you realize the disparity between reality and what people are told is reality. So it's just so important that we just keep hammering this and trying to show people what's going on so that uh, they can see that they're, they're being taken for a ride. Totally, definitely. You know, when I when I went to China with a group, we went right before COVID nineteen hit. Actually, I think the first unknown cases, no one knew what it was at the time, were happening in Hubei province and Wuhan at the time they were being discovered, but it wasn't really a thing because nobody really knew what the hell was going on just yet. And ever since I've been really wanting to go back to Asia. And I think a lot of what we've discussed today is a, a reason, our reasons why, I mean, the progress, the, the hope for humanity, these, the project, like the Belt and Road Initiative, all this infrastructure development, the fact that lives are improving in China and in the region because of this shift, this development of a multipolar world that's occurring. I mean, we just need so much more attention on this. And what I've been disappointed with out my way out here in the United States and the broader Western world, especially on those who call themselves progressives or the left, is that it's kind of ignored. I mean, I, I think there's a big racial aspect to this. I think there's just a real anti-communist tendency that exists in this part of the world. And because of that, I mean, so many opportunities are being missed to, I think, forge a, a much stronger pole of progress and, re and resistance to empire. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about this. When you were speaking, I, I was thinking about you were talking about Pakistan. I mean, part of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and its impact on Pakistan is I think the first public transit system was built there. The first metro train system was built with Chinese assistance. I mean, that's that is what the forces at the United States are seeking to literally blow up. I mean, that's what's happening in Myanmar, too. I mean, these forces that the U.S. are supporting are literally targeting infrastructure. They say it. I mean, the, the, the State Department will say we're targeting these institutions in this infrastructure because they don't want to see it built up. And that, that's what always gets me about this whole oh, China and the U.S. false equivalency narrative. It's if China and the U.S. were, were the same, then China would be looking to denigrate and suppress and oppress the countries that it works with, not help ensure what China's actual vision is, South-South development, not ensure that countries that have this similar legacy and history of colonial imperialist oppression, help ensure that they reach a similar level to them. I mean, to whose benefit if you're a colonizer is that right it's to the benefit of everybody that's the exact opposite 
of colonialism. And when you're describing what the U.S. and the West are trying to sow and uh, trying to maintain empire, I couldn't think about, I thought about the United States itself. That's the situation here. It's the divisions, the strife, this economic crisis, this lack of trust. There's this sort of decadence in the face of incompetence almost, right? You have all of this happening in the United States, in the West, and we're constantly told that China is the problem and that there is this uh, drive for this new Chinese empire when in fact the biggest problem for us right now is how the West's declining empire just uh, is not going to go out without a fight. And I think that's what we're seeing when it comes to all of the progress that's occurring with the Belt and Road Initiative, somebody in the chat asks, well, what are the conditions of workers in BRI? You know, China's poor trillions of uh, dollar, public dollars into these infrastructure projects. What's going on with the people? And even the World Bank, I think a couple of years ago, said that there will be something like uh, 7.6 million people lifted out of extreme poverty very soon because of these projects. I mean, these projects are off are providing jobs there when you lift the level of development of a country the standards of living go up and one of the things that i think is so important about resistance and progress and revolutions and you know a lot of people on the left who want to see these things is that it cannot happen in a state of despair and in a state of underdevelopment like it cannot happen out of mass suffering. And I think we're seeing that in the U.S. and the West. People, more and more and more and more people are suffering. And we're seeing all of the cracks and fissures in these societies emerge from that suffering. But when standards of living improve, people's expectations then rise. And then you have an even further impetus to uh, make progress and to ultimately achieve very progressive goals for humanity. And I think China is showing us that and the rest of Asia are showing us that. So I really appreciate uh, you, Brian, coming on. I don't know if you want to respond to any of that and then maybe just any any closing thoughts. Sure. I, I just think that it's it's important for people to realize that a lot of people in leadership in China they come from a, a technical background because if you're trying to feed people, house people, uh, build transportation, this this requires a technical approach. And so people that that think they're going to you know spark all of these revolutions with just ideology, it needs this technical component. This is what China is proving. Uh, this is what actually works. This is what's actually lifting people up. It's not an ideology by itself. It's backed by a very technical and practical approach. And even here in Thailand, I mean, you you see people doing very practical things to help improve life. And you, you give people access to uh, education so that they can get these skills and then contribute toward the country. And this is what keeps things going. And I just think back to the United States, the way people kind of look down on vocational school and uh, technical jobs and people want to show off their, their legal di diplomas or whatever. And it's just, I mean, look at America as a country run by lawyers and, and career politicians who, who don't, who have never had a real job in their life. Or, or some military mixed in there. And it's just it's just a recipe for disaster because these people don't even understand 
the, the type of solutions that need to be implemented. So how are they ever going to do it uh, versus countries that, that have people in power that do understand this and are using this approach. So uh, being ha having a technical approach to all of this is, is very important. And I often find that when, when I'm personally trying to contribute, I, I have an industrial design background. When you're talking about practical solutions, you could have like 10 people in your group and all, every single one of them has like an uh, uh, opposing ideology, but they're all coming together for this very practical solution. Mm -hmm. They put all of that aside and they do something that tangibly improves everything for everybody. So I, I just think that's something important to keep in mind. I didn't always have a technical background. I, I went and got one because I saw here in Thailand, uh, people don't realize this, but the, the, the Thai monarchy for decades has promoted a very practical approach, the idea of self-sufficiency, understanding where your food, your power, everything comes from, mm -hmm. and having control over that, having your own land, having your own uh, means of production. This was all promoted at a, at a at the top level here in Thailand. That's what got me into looking into this. And I, I noticed there's a lot of similarities to what's going on in China. And I, I just think it's so important for people to explore that. Even if you don't have a technical background, it's something that you should probably try to look at. Just start, just mm. take a look at it. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Especially when we hear things from the Mike Pompeo's and Anthony Blinken's of the world of China stealing patents, China stealing this, every, you know, yeah. the, the, it's a force that's uh, t really holding back innovation. Well, just, just take a look at everything that you're saying and all of the ways in which uh, the, the Chinese government, the CPC, and uh, the rest of the, the the rest of the continent, the rest of Southeast Asia, the rest of the region is trying to ultimately. I mean, a lot of it is is learning by example, and we've there are quite a few countries that are attempting to do that. Um, and, and I think that it's it's so important because it it's very concrete, right? We tend to, in the United States and the left in the West to look at a lot of things ideologically because we have no power. <laughs> and I think yeah. when you look out outside of this realm, that's why I focus a lot on international affairs, a lot on the world situation is you see that once you, you get power, once you have the power to actually influence society, once ordinary people are kind of put in command, then a lot of very interesting things can happen, especially just in the way uh, in how things are governed and how economic development happens so so thanks brian it was really good to have you on i know that this video in some capacity to be on your channel as well at some point in the near future um so do you want to tell people where they can find you i, I have a website newatlas.report and i also have my my channel on youtube it's just the new atlas just uh, search for it and you'll find it and uh, i'm also on twitter for the time being that kicked me off of Twitter and Facebook for years. And there's some, I don't know, I just snuck back on somehow. Mm. Brian underscore Berletic, that's where you can find me on, on Twitter for the time being. Uh, and thank you very much, Danny, for having me on. I really appreciated this. And I, I would love to come back on any time, just ask. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll definitely collaborate more in the future. All right, everybody, that's it for us. Take good care. We'll be back soon.